Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to explore a person I think may be the most interesting figure in the entire Bible, and that is uh, Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah. What we're going to do is really to study some passages from the Bible about Elijah and then briefly look at what happens to him uh, in his post-biblical career. Because, you know, everyone else... I mean, often in the Bible, when there's someone important, you hear about their birth, about their childhood, about what they went through, right? Moses, right? His whole birth story and uh, his nearly drowning in the Nile is very important. Some of the prophets, we hear that they were called by God. We hear about their, their transformation from, you know, non-prophetic career into a prophetic career. With Elijah, it's different. Elijah just appears out of the blue. He is described in the book of Kings, right? There's 1 Kings and 2 Kings, uh, David and Solomon, and then later kings of Israel, and the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. The book of Kings goes through all of that. Elijah just pops out of nowhere, it seems, and he appears suddenly and disappears throughout his life. And even later, after the Bible, we find that, right? Elijah's kind of... Uh, He's almost, I, I call him the, the Jewish Lone Ranger. <laughs> you know, he shows up, he does his amazing work, and then before anybody can thank him, he's disappeared. And that, the roots of that are already there in the Bible. But before we look at the Bible, um, who, how do we encounter Elijah? Just call out. Why is he important in Jewish practice, in Jewish life, in the... What, when you hear the word Elijah, what do you think of? When do you run into him? Chariot of fire. <laughs> I'm sorry? Doesn't he go up in a chariot of fire? Yeah, that, that's in the Bible, but I mean in, I mean in, in, your, in, 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 in your regular life. Okay, when do you run into him? Okay, so, so Elijah shows up every Seder, right? Right. I mean, he's supposed to show up. People go to the door to greet him. There's actually a cup of wine for him on the table. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have Passover, pretty major holiday. Elijah is prominent in one of the most major holidays. Where else? He also just sort of pops in and out of the Talmud. The Talmud, he shows up very interesting ways, and sometimes in disguise. We'll look at a little bit of that. But I, I, I mean, not so much in traditional literature. Where else do you encounter about, Elijah? Right, we sing about it. We sing to him. Right? When? Right, when? At Havdalah. Havdalah. So every single week at Havdalah, we ask for Elijah to come, right? Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi. We'll come across that word in a minute in Kings. 
Now, why are we singing for Eliyahu? Why do we want him to come? Bimhera biyamenu, the song goes on, quickly in our days, yavo elenu, may he come to us, im Mashiach. So Elijah is going to announce the coming of the Mashiach. That's his role. Elijah will come one day before the Mashiach comes. And in fact, the rabbis ask, it says in the Talmud a very interesting thing. It says Elijah will not come on Friday. <laughs> Why? People are too busy. They're too busy getting ready for Shabbos. So they're not going to go out and greet the Messiah. They're not going to greet the person who's announcing the Messiah. They have to get ready for Shabbos. So the Talmud says he won't come on Friday. Now, if he won't come on Friday, that means the Mashiach won't come on Shabbat because Elijah comes one day before the Shabbat. Now, the question is, could Elijah come on Shabbat and then maybe the Mashiach will come Sunday. So can Elijah come on Shabbat? What's the problem? Traveling. He has to travel a long distance. You're not allowed to travel more than what? 2,000 cubits. This is a cubit. You can't travel more than 2,000 cubits beyond the city. Now, Elijah's going to have to come from a far away. Elijah is in heaven or Gan Eden. He has to go over the world. So can he travel on Shabbat? Okay, the question is, you can't walk that distance. But can you fly that distance? <laughs> the Talmud says, the Talmud doesn't ask, can you fly that distance? But the Talmud says, can you be on a ship? If the ship is a certain distance above the ground, above the floor of the seabed, that maybe that's allowed. So would that apply to Elijah? Because maybe he could fly a distance above the ground. Maybe he can fly as far as he wants. The Talmud doesn't decide it. So it's left undecided. So we don't know whether Eliyahu will come on Shabbat. He won't come on Friday because we have to get ready for Shabbos. He, won't, he might come on Shabbat. He might not. So finally, Saturday night, we say, okay, no more excuses. Come. Come and announce the Mashiach. That's why we sing to Eliyahu on Saturday night. Okay, well, let's, let's go back to the origin. Take this sheet. What the sheet has is uh, three pages, actually, yeah, more than that. It has a few pages on Elijah in the Bible, and then a couple pages on Elijah in Talmud and Midrash. So this is for your own reading pleasure. We're going to look at some of it today, but we're not going to try to cover all of it. But let's see what, what I'm going to start with the Bible itself, and I think that'll take a good amount of the time. Okay, let's start with, with what happens in the Bible itself. Everything in italics is from, is a translation of the Bible. Most of the page is italics, you'll see. This I've taken mostly from Robert Alter's new translation, a superb translation. I've changed it a little bit, but basically followed him. Ahab. Ahab, of course, is the king at the time, right? Now, when Americans think of Ahab, what do they think of? Moby Dick. Moby Dick. They don't think of biblical King Ahab. Right? So, and Melville certainly isn't talking about Eliyahu and Ahab, right? Why did, why did Melville pick Ahab? We don't really know, but it's interesting. In Moby Dick, you remember Ahab is mad, right? And, and the sailors who are going out with Ahab, they know he's mad, and they don't really want to go out. So the night before the Ahab ship is supposed to sail, his, his sailors who might be risking their lives, you know, going out with him the next day, they decide to go to the bar and get drunk. So the sailors are getting drunk, and an old man comes up to them and says, watch out for that Ahab. Watch out what you're getting yourselves into. And what's the old man's name? 
Eli. So actually, Melville picked the name Ahab because of Elijah. And Elijah actually shows up in that scene. It's amazing. Elijah just pops up everywhere. He pops up everywhere. Who knows this song? Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. So what happens in the next verse? I look over Jordan, what do I see? Coming for, what's Jordan doing there? The Jordan is where Elijah sailed up to heaven in a chariot. So that Negro spiritual is saying, I'm Elijah too. Let the chariot come for me. The chariot didn't just come for Elijah, take him to heaven. The chariot can come for anybody. So that black spiritual is about Elijah. So Elijah pops up a lot. Okay, Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the eyes, should be the eyes, in the eyes of Yudhevavhe. That's how I like to pronounce that divine name, just sounding out the letters Yud, He, Vav, He, because no one knows how to pronounce it. So Omri was wicked more than all who preceded him, as though it were a light thing for him to follow in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nevat. That was the first king of the northern kingdom, and he set up golden calves. So as if it wasn't bad enough that Ahab did that, what did he do that was even worse? He took as his wife, Jezebel. Okay, everything's always blamed on the woman, right? Ahab was married to Jezebel. Ahab might not have been so great himself, but when he married Jezebel, then things even got worse because she was the daughter of a king of the Sidonians. That's up the Lebanese coast a little bit. So that kingdom was called Tyre and Sidon or Sidon. So the king of that territory married his daughter to Ahab. This is really a political alliance, right? Solomon married the daughter of the Pharaoh because of a political alliance, and Ahab married the daughter of the king of Sidon. And what did Ahab do? He went and served Baal and bowed down to him. The point here seems to be because Jezebel worshipped false gods, she enticed Ahab to worship false gods. And he set up an altar to Baal, in the house of Baal that he built in Samaria. Okay, Baal is the main Canaanite god. Samaria was a new capital that actually Ahab's father, Omri, had built. And Ahab made Ha'asherah. This is the Canaanite goddess. So Baal is the god and Asherah is the goddess. And Ahab worshipped that divine couple, Baal and Asherah. Okay, Asherah can mean a pole or a tree but it's something that symbolizes the goddess Asherah. Ahab did more to vex Yudhevavhe, god of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who preceded him. Okay, so Ahab worshipped idols, and now we come, that's chapter 16 of the first book of Kings. Now we come to the first mention of Eliyahu. Elijah the Tishbite. Okay, that's Hatishbi, probably named after the territory in which he lived, Tishb. And there is a, an Arabic village, an Arab village, Al-Istib, al the same letters, in the, in the Transjordan, across the Jordan River, around this territory of Gilad. Okay, you might remember, a few of the tribes don't actually come into the Promised Land. They stay on, in the Transjordan, right east of the Jordan. And that territory is where Eliyahu lived. We don't know where he was born. The Bible never says where he was born never mentions his parents. 
This is the first mention of Eliyahu in the entire Bible. What does it say? Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilad said to Ahab, by the life of Yudhevave, God of Israel, whom I have served, there shall be no rain or dew these years except by my word. So Elijah is predicting a drought. Why? He doesn't say, but apparently because Ahab is worshiping Baal and Asherah. So Elijah is going to cause the drought. In fact, it almost seems like he's doing it himself. He says, by the life of God. He says, by the life of Yudhevave. But what does he say? There shall be no rain or dew these years except by my word. There's a little bit of ego we find in maybe in all prophets, maybe in all religious leaders. But Elijah sometimes seems to, it's unclear whether he's doing things for God or for himself. And with the prophet, you don't always know, right? The prophet is conveying the word of God. So where does the prophet end and the divine take over? In some ways, that's the beauty of prophecy, that he is taken over by the divine. But with Elijah, it's sometimes unclear whether he thinks it's him, for himself or for God. So he says there'll be no rain until I say there will be. Notice what his name involves. Eliyahu. Eli, my God, Yahu. So most names, many, many names in the Bible have a divine element in them. Right? But Eliyahu has two. Eli, my God, Yahu. Yahu is just short for Yudhevave. My God is Yahu. So he's a firm believer in God. I would say he's a little bit of a religious fanatic, Elijah. He's so in love with God that he wants to destroy any indication of idolatry, any vestige of idolatry. Anybody who worships idols has to be convinced or eliminated. So there's a drought, and God says, number four, go from here and turn eastward, hide in the wadi of Karit. He tells Elijah to go to a wadi nearby by the Jordan, and you'll drink from the wadi. It shall be that from the wadi you shall drink, and the ravens I have commanded to sustain you there. So he's going to be fed miraculously by birds, and he'll drink water from the the stream and that goes on for a while but what happens the wadi dried up for there was no rain so Elijah himself starts to suffer from this drought that he's bringing so then God tells him to go to the coast to go up toward that area what we would call Lebanon Tyre or Sidon and God says there'll be a widow there who will take care of you but when he comes to the widow And he asks the widow to give him some food. And what does the widow say? Number five, the widow says to Elijah, by the life of Yudhevavah, your God, I have no loaf, but only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. And here I'm gathering a couple of sticks so I can go in and make it for me and my son and we will eat it and die. We will eat it and die? Why does does she say that? There's so little left. we We only have enough for one more meal to eat. Let us eat. We're going to eat that meal and we'll die. Elijah says, fear not. Come, do as you have spoken. But first make me from there a little loaf and bring it out to me. And for you and your son make afterward. It's a little strange. He says, feed me first, then take care of yourself and your hungry boy. A little bit of his own ego again. Or a test. It could be testing her. 
That's what some commentators say. For thus Yudhevape, God of Israel, has said, the jar of flour will not go empty, nor the jug of oil be drained until the day Yudhevape sends rain upon the land. Okay, so he says, your little bit of flour and oil are going to last for as long as you need. So even more miraculous. First the ravens feed him, and now this jug of flour and jug of oil are endless, going to be endlessly supplied. So that goes on a little bit, but then the widow's son becomes ill, so severely ill that no breath was left in him, and then the mother lashes out. What is between you and me, O man of God, that you have come to me to recall my crime and to put my son to death? Why have you come here and killed my son? But strange, she says, why have you come to recall my crime? A lot of commentators try to interpret what this, mean, what this means. Apparently what it means is that she feels she's not that bad a person, just a normal person, but when a man of God shows up, Elijah shows up, Compared to him, it looks like she's not so worthy. In fact, that she may have sinned. So against the background of the prophet of God, her sins are going to stand out. That's probably what it means. Elijah says, give me your son. Okay, the son was, was dead or on the, on the verge of death. Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and brought him to the upper chamber where he was staying and laid him on his bed. And he called out to Yudhebabe saying, Yudhevave, my God, have you brought evil even upon the widow with whom I lodge, putting her son to death? It's bad enough you've made people starve and have a drought, Elijah is saying, but you've actually hurt this widow who's helping me. He stretched out over the child. Turn the page. He stretched out over the child three times. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. On your page, it's not done yet. I'm reading from a different version. Toward the bottom of that first page. He stretched out over the child three times and called out to Yudhevave, saying, Yudhevave, my God, let this child's life breath return unto him. And Yudhevave heeded Elijah's voice, and the child's life breath returned unto him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him downstairs from the upper chamber and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And the word of Yudhevave in your mouth is truth. So he stretched out over the child. Maybe this is some kind of artificial respiration. Actually, with Elijah's successor, Elisha, with Elisha does a similar miracle. And there it says he breathed into the mouth of the boy who had died or nearly died. So whether it's the same thing here or somehow the, the power, the energy of Elijah is transmitted into this lifeless child, and he comes back. So notice here already, Elijah is conquering death. And if later Elijah goes up to heaven in a chariot, this, in a sense, is already a, a hint, a precursor. Okay, I realize I'm moving quickly through this, but that's just because I want to cover the biblical material. Then I'll, I'll pause when we're done with this, if there are questions. Okay, number six. Elijah had parched the world. That's how the Talmud describes it. He had parched the world for several years when God commanded him, go up here before Ahab, that I might send rain upon the land. Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, troubler of Israel? Elijah replied, I have not troubled Israel, but rather you and your father's house, 
by your forsaking Yudhevav's commands and following the Baalim, okay, the plural of Baal. So Elijah tells Ahab that the time has come for a contest between all the prophets of Baal, the false prophets, and Elijah. So he tells the king, send out, gather for me all Israel at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Okay, we have both a male and a female there who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab sent out among all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you keep hopping between the two branches? Okay, this image like a bird hopping, not being able to decide which branch it's going to go on. What, what does he mean by that? If Yudhevave is, is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Okay, so what does this show? The people are really, you know, trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping God, and Elijah is saying you have to make a choice. The people want to incorporate both, maybe. It's not that the people are totally rejecting God, but they, they can't give up the allurement of the fertility gods and goddesses around them in Canaan. Elijah said to the people, I alone remain a prophet of Yudhevave. Okay, again, the self, the emphasis on the self. I'm the only one. I'm the only true believer. Now, there must have been some other loyal Israelites around. And in fact, the Bible itself shows that there are. But Elijah gets a little carried away sometimes with his own mission and his own importance. I alone remain. And the prophets of Baal are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose for themselves one bull and cut it up and set it on the wood. But let them set no fire. And I, on my part, will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but I will set no fire. You shall call on the name of your God, and I, on my part, will call on the name of Yudhevave, and it shall be that the God who answers with fire, he is God. Okay, that's the contest. They each have a cut-up bull, no fire, and we'll see which God can burn up that bull by bringing fire from heaven. And all the people answered, saying, The matter is good. Okay, good idea. Having set the terms of the contest, Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal and offers that they go first. Robert Alter, in his translation, he has a comment here. He says, it's like in tennis. Okay, you, you, you serve first. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls for yourselves and go first, for you are the majority, and call on the name of your God, but set no fire. They took the bull that was given to them, they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no sound and no one answering. They hopped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Call out, li call out loudly, for he is a god. Maybe he's defecating or urinating or off on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. If you check your Bible translations, you probably won't find defecating or urinating. <laughs> but that seems to be the consensus now among the leading Bible scholars that these are idioms and euphemisms in the, in the Hebrew that really mean that. But he certainly means that maybe he's sleeping. Shout louder. Maybe your God is sleeping. You haven't woken him up yet. 
So that these, this is saying to the prophets of Baal, right? Not to the Israelites, but to these prophets of Baal. They called out loudly and gashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, till blood spilled over them. When noon passed, they flung themselves into a frenzy until the hour of the meal offering, but there was no sound and no one answering and no attention. Okay, so they've failed totally, and now Elijah tries. Elijah said to the people, draw near me, and all the people drew near him. Then he mended the wrecked altar of Yudhevave. Okay, on Mount Carmel, there had been an altar for worshiping Yudhevave, but it had been destroyed or ruined. Maybe Jezebel ruined it. Who can blame everything on her? <laughs> Elijah took 12 stones, corresponding to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yudhevave came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He's referring back to the original Jacob, right? Jacob had his name changed to Israel. He's alluding to that. These are the tribes of the sons of Jacob, all the tribes of Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yudhevave, and around the altar he made a trench with a capacity of two seahs of seed. He laid out the wood and cut up the bull and placed it on the wood. He said, fill four jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Okay, he's making it even harder for the fire to come. He said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And where is this taking place? This is all on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, okay. Right. Yeah, which is such a prominent, you know, beautiful site. The Baha'i Gardens, I'm sure some of you have seen that. In his time, the entire thing looked like the Baha'i Garden. I mean, not that manicured, but that fertile. So it's the fertile spot. So the water is running all around the altar and the trench. Having grandly set the stage, now Elijah prays. At the hour of the meal offering in the afternoon, Elijah the prophet, this is the first time he's actually called Elijah the prophet in the, in the whole Bible, I mean, in, this, in, this, in these few chapters. Eliyahu Hanavi. Elijah the prophet approached and said, Yudhevavhe, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, this day let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. Okay, God and I, again. And by your word have I done all these things. Answer me, Yudhevave, answer me, that this people may know that you, Yudhevave, are God, and it is you who turned their heart backward. That's an astounding line. Commentators have wrestled with that for centuries, for millennia. How can he say to God, you turned their heart backward, meaning what? You, God, what does he mean, turned their heart backward? Not that God pushed them away, but, but God, God made them do what? God made them worship the idols. God made them sin. That's very strange. So is there fear on the part of the people? Like on, if I go back to number four, and he's telling them to hide in the wadi instead of just go to the wadi, but to hide. And then there's these... I mean, hide is said to Elijah. Right. But Elijah has to hide probably because Ahab and Jezebel want to kill him. But they're using words in here that to me indicate some fear, whether it's Elijah uh -huh. or anybody else. And so uh -huh. I'm just wondering about that. Yeah, no, fear is certainly there. But, but I want to focus on this for a minute. You turn their heart backward. You know, you would think the normal theology is that 
you know, in fact, the, the way it's worded elsewhere in rabbinic literature, hakol bidei shamayim chutz at shamayim. Everything is in the hand of heaven except the fear of heaven. In other words, it's up to people to decide whether they're going to observe or not, whether they're going to sin or not. That's not God, that's people. But Elijah is saying, you caused them to sin. You turned their heart backward. Some commentators, they don't want to go there. They say, no, no, no. It just means you turned their heart back to God. They used to worship idols. And now answer me, and they'll realize that you turned their heart back. But the Hebrew doesn't mean that. The Hebrew doesn't mean back. It means backward. It doesn't mean to come back. It means kind of to lose, you know, to, to go the wrong way. So this is a bit of radical theology saying God causes everything, even sin. God causes everything. And in fact, look what the, the Talmud says about this. The next paragraph is not from the Bible. I snuck in here a little bit of rabbinic literature. Look at the next. What did Elijah say? Answer me, Yudhevave, answer me, that this people may know that you, Yudhevave, are God. Okay, that much is a quote. You see the italics. Now we have non-italics. This is the Talmud. And if you do not answer me, Elijah's saying, then I'll say, it's you who turned their heart backward. That's what the rabbis do to try to make sense of this. How can Elijah say, you, you caused them to sin? Well, Elijah's always saying, if you don't answer me, if you don't bring fire right now, I'm going to say that you turned their heart backward. But that's not what the text says. The text just says that that's what Elijah is, is saying without any reference to the bringing fire. Answer me that they'll know you're God. And it's you who made them sin. And so that's enough. And immediately what happens? Then the fire of Yudhevave came down and consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, and the soil, licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw and fell on their faces and said, what do they say? Adonai hu ha'elohim. Adonai hu ha'elohim. Anybody remember when we say that in the liturgy? Hmm? The very end of Yom Kippur, the very end of the last service, Ni'ilah. Actually, then it said uh, seven times. Here it said two times. That's taken from here. So Elijah also comes on Yom Kippur. People don't make a point of that. The rabbi doesn't stop and say, okay, now we're going to say something that the people said to Elijah. But that's where that line comes from, from this story. So it's the most dramatic moment in Elijah's career up to this moment. And it becomes the most dramatic line in the Yom Kippur, or certainly one of the top three lines of the Yom Kippur liturgy. The end of 25, 26 hours of fasting, everyone is exhausted and drained and dreaming of that piece of pastry. But they say, what do they say? Adonai hu Elohim, exactly what the people say to Elijah. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So this is the greatest moment of, of Elijah's career. You know, he's, he's beaten, he's defeated the prophets of Baal, he's proved to the people that Yudhebabe is the true God, now they'll reject Baal. How does he continue? He's a fanatic. Elijah said to the people, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah took them down to the wadi of Kishon and slaughtered them there. 
Elijah kills all 450 prophets of Baal. It's interesting, the 400 prophets of Asherah somehow have disappeared. Remember at the beginning it said 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. But in the contest, it's only the prophets of Baal. It's not the prophets of Asherah. They're different explanations. In fact, the wildest explanation is by a very fine biblical scholar um, who says what this means is that the winner is going to get the girl. <laughs> Meaning what? It's either yud or Baal. And whichever one wins will have the female goddess. That sounds a little wild, but that does make sense in terms of Kabbalah, because in Kabbalah we do have a goddess who emerges. Who is that? Shekhinah is the feminine part of God, never recognized in, in Bible or Talmud as a feminine goddess. And then in Kabbalah, she becomes the feminine half of God, in some ways reminiscent of Asherah. You might say a kosher form of, of Asherah. <laughs> it sounds a little bizarre to put it that way, but the Zohar actually says the original name of Shekhinah was Asherah. The Zohar actually says that. I usually don't say that in public. <laughs> That's a really shocking thing. But on some level, the Zohar is aware that the feminine aspect of God had been rejected, and then she came back. In fact, Sholem, the great scholar Sholem, calls this the revenge of myth. The myth of the god and goddess had been eliminated, but then it came back right in the heart of rabbinic Judaism through the, through the Kabbalah. But in this passage, Asherah is somehow out of the picture. It's not clear why. But Elijah slaughters the prophets of Baal. Okay, we're going to skip a little bit because I uh, want to save a little time for the rabbinic material too. Uh, Elijah tells Ahab that the rain is going to come. Remember, the whole thing was to end the drought. So far we've had fire, but not rain. Soon the rain comes as well. And uh, look, uh, about three or four paragraphs down, the one that says, Elijah said, go up, say to Ahab, harness your chariot. You have that? So harness your chariot and go, go down so that the rain will not hold you back. Okay, the rain's about to come and Elijah doesn't want Ahab's chariot to get stuck in the mud. Meanwhile, the heavens grew dark with clouds and wind and there was heavy rain. Ahab mounted up and went to Jezreel where his, his uh, palace was. And the hand of Yudhevave came upon Elijah, and he girded his loins and ran before Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So this is amazing. Ahab is going back to his, to his palace in his chariot, drawn by horses. Elijah is so inspired, he outruns the chariot. He outruns the horses, maybe running in the rain. So this is the, the triumphant moment of his life. He's running in the rain faster than the chariot, all the way back to the palace. You would think that's his great triumph, but what happens? Jezebel says, one day from now, you're going to be like those prophets of Baal. Elijah had slaughtered all of her prophets. She says, same is going to happen to you. But she gives him a warning. By saying that, Elijah flees, and he goes a certain distance to the Negev, and then he's helped by an angel. And he continues going 40 days and 40 nights as far as the mountain of God, Chorev. What is Chorev? Another name for? Sinai. For Sinai. 
40 days and 40 nights makes you think of what? Um, Noah. Noah, but also, good, because you all heard the Torah reading recently, but also Moses is on Mount Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. Elijah takes him that long to get there. He wanders for 40 days, 40 nights as far as Mount Sinai. There he went into a cave. Everyone with me in number seven? Mm -hmm. There he went into a cave where he spent the night. And look, the word of Yudhei came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's a great line. In Hebrew, it's Malachapo Eliyahu. What are you doing here? Which probably means, you know, you're a prophet. You should be with the people. Why are you off wandering in the desert? He replied. Okay, what does Elijah say? I have been so zealous for Yudhei Okay, he knows his own character. He's almost calling himself a fanatic in a positive sense. Okay, I've been so zealous for Yudhei God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. Your altars they have destroyed. Your prophets they have killed by the sword. And I, I alone remain. Okay, we've heard that before. I'm the only one left. I'm the only true believer. And they have sought to take my life. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before Yudhei Okay, God says, come out of the cave, stand. This is God speaking, but he says, before Yudhei as if before me. Look, I am passing. Okay, Yudhei is passing by with a great and mighty wind, tearing out mountains and shattering rocks before Yudhei Not in the wind is Yudhei And after the wind, an earthquake. Not in the earthquake is Yudhei And after the earthquake, fire. Not in the fire is Yudhei And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. It's a beautiful phrase. The Hebrew is kol demama daka. It's often translated a still, small voice. But that's not what the Hebrew means. It's a little, it's a little bit technical, but the Hebrew kol is, is the construct. Kol demama. It's the sound of silence. The sound of what type of silence? The sound of thin Silence, a sound of sheer silence. So this is beautiful. He's saying God is not found in the powerful manifestations, fire, wind, earthquake. God is found in quiet. God is found in silence. Maybe this is a little bit of a rebuke of Elijah's style, his fiery style, his violence, his fanaticism. He's saying God isn't in those phenomena. God is in demama, silence. When Elijah heard, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And look, a voice came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? We've heard that before, right? The same line. God says the same thing. Maybe he hopes Elijah has changed a little bit. He's seen the fire, the earthquake, the wind. God has told him, no, that's not how I appear. So God asks again, what are you doing here? What does Elijah say? The same exact thing. He hasn't learned anything. I have been so zealous for Yudhei God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, your altars they have destroyed, your prophets they have killed by the sword, and I, I alone remain, and they have sought to take my life. Okay, just like three verses after the one we just read, he repeats the same words. Now some Bible scholars say, wait a minute, there was just a mistake here. Some copyist was a little tired, some scribe wrote, and he wrote it again. And some Bible scholars say, yes, it's just meant to come once. Others say, no, that's the whole point. This shows you Elijah didn't learn. God's trying to teach him a new way, a new approach. 
And Elijah just keeps saying, I'm the only one. They've all forsaken me. They're all out to get me. And what is God, how does God respond? Yudhebabe said to him, go return on your way. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Avel Machola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. God tells him to find his successor. And some of the, of the rabbinic commentators say, look, look at the next line. The Midrash, what does the Midrash say? In your place. What is God saying? I do not want your prophesying. I'm tired of you. Go find a successor. You're too self-centered. You're too fierce. Israel needs a little more love. It's not clear that that's what the Bible means, but God is telling him to find a successor. And the last bit of the Bible, before we save a few minutes for Talmud and Midrash, this is Elijah's disappearance, number eight. As they, they means Elijah and his new disciple, Elisha, as they went along walking and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared, separating the two of them, with separating Elisha from Elijah. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha was watching and kept crying out, my father, my father, Israel's chariots and horsemen. And he saw him no more, meaning Elisha saw Elijah no more. Then Elisha grasped his garments. He took his clothes, his own clothes. And what does he do? What does that mean, tore them in two? What is that? Renting. Rending the garments because it's a sign of mourning. So Elisha is in mourning. So the question is really, what happened to Elijah? Is it that he died, or is it that God took him up to heaven to keep him there alive? Now, the, the rabbis and the Talmud and the Midrash and all of the later tradition assumes that Elijah did not die. Because he was taken up to heaven, he's available. He can come if someone's in need. He can come to announce the Messiah. He can come to, to explain things to the rabbis when they're arguing. But from the account in Kings itself, I mean, the clearest thing is Elisha thinks he's died. Elisha thinks that Elijah has actually died because he tears his garments. That's what you do when someone's died. But the view in rabbinic literature is that Elijah lives forever. And in fact, even in the Bible itself, you have a later reference. You have a later reference to Elijah. Look at the last part of uh, number nine here, the last paragraph of this section. Look, I'm sending to you Elijah the prophet. This is from the prophet Malachi, the last paragraph on that, of this uh, page. This is from the prophet Malachi, Malachi, the last prophet of the Hebrew collection of prophets. This is the last line in that book. So these are the concluding lines of all of the prophetic literature of the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all that. The last, last prophet in that whole, whole list of prophets is Malachi, Malachi. And what happens at the end of Malachi? Look, I'm sending to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the day of yud great and awesome. He will bring fathers' hearts back to their children and children's hearts to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with sacred destruction. That's an amazing phrase, sacred destruction. It's one word in Hebrew, cherem. Cherem really means destroying, 
because something is taboo, destroying it because it can't be put to any other use. That's the last line, but when this is chanted in the Haftarah, it happens to be chanted as a Haftarah for the Shabbat right before Pesach. Because Pesach, we're going to have Elijah come to the Seder and hopefully announce the Messiah. And the Shabbat before Pesach, we read this part of the, with this chapter of Malachi, we read as the Haftarah announcing that Elijah is going to come. But because the verse ends with a kind of dreary note, sacred destruction, you repeat the previous line. Look, I'm sending to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the day of Yerevavi, who will bring fathers' hearts back to their children, children's hearts to their fathers. No, no, just Dave Yerevavi, great and awesome. That, that line is repeated. So the point is, already in the Bible, Elijah seems to be hoped for as the one who will return right before... Now, the Bible doesn't say Mashiach. The Bible says the day of Yudhei But that's close enough to the Messiah, to the, to the notion of the, of the Mashiach, that the rabbis conclude Elijah will come to announce the Messiah. This is the origin of that idea that Elijah will announce the Messiah. Because Malachi says, before the coming of the day of Yudhei Elijah will reappear. So Malachi must have thought that Elijah was not dead, or maybe that he'll be brought back to life. But it seems to me because he was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot, he's there with God, or he's there in paradise, and he can come and, and help us. Let's just look at, at one or two passages from the rabbinic literature. And uh, you can take this and study a little on your own. And my full book on Elijah will be done in about well, that's the problem. When you write a biography about somebody who never died, uh, it's, hard to have a, it's hard to have a deadline for that. Right? But I hope to finish before too long. So this is Elijah in Talmud and Midrash. What happens to Elijah? He's really not the fanatic any longer. He changes from a biblical fanatic to, I would say, a, a Jewish bodhisattva. Some of you know a little about Buddhism. What is a bodhisattva in Buddhism? He's a person who is just about to get to nirvana, right, the ultimate realm of bliss, and he says, I'm not going to go. I want to go back to earth and help everybody else get to nirvana. And really, that's what Elijah does. He could be in heaven, but rather than stay up there in heaven in his chariot or in God's uh, house of study, he comes back to earth and helps people who aren't yet perfect or fulfilled or, or in good shape. Of these various stories, uh, first let, let's look at the first one. A story about Rabbi Meir. Okay, he was a leading sage. Meir had rescued his sister-in-law who was condemned to slavery in a Roman brothel. But because of that, the Romans wanted to get Meir. Okay, so Mayor's wanted picture was posted on the gates of Rome. And now comes the quote. They went and engraved Rabbi Mayor's image at the entrance of Rome and proclaimed, anyone who sees this face, bring him. One day some Roman officers saw Rabbi Mayor, ran after him. He ran away from them. Some say Elijah appeared to the Roman pursuers as a prostitute and embraced Rabbi Mayor. Why would he do that? The pursuer said, heaven forbid, if this were Rabbi Meir, he wouldn't have done that. <laughs> so Elijah does what's ever necessary to save Jews. 
He's something of a trickster, right? He'll do things beyond the expected. He'll do things totally out of the ordinary, but he's no longer a violent religious fanatic. He's doing whatever he can to, to help those in need. The next one is a wonderful story, but you'll, you'll read it on your own. I'm sure some of you have read it before. Um, famous rabbinic story that involves Elijah. Actually, no, no, let, let's read it. It's just too good not to read. Number two. This is a story known as the Oven of Achnai. Okay, here's the, here's the scoop. The setting is the rabbinic house of study where the sages are engaged in a legal dispute concerning a technical matter. Whether a certain type of oven built from detachable sections, <clears throat> you can think of a little, um, you know, like concentric circles of clay that, that would pile up and make an oven. Okay, they're all hollow, and inside you would, you would bake whatever you need to be baked. But the oven is actually constructed out of detachable sections. Is an oven like that subject to ritual impurity? Can, it, can that oven become impure? Or is the fact that it's made of de detachable sections mean it's not an ordinary oven? Very important question. Rabbi Eliezer had tried to convince his colleagues that that kind of oven is not subject to impurity. But the majority said, no, it is subject to impurity. But Eliezer won't give up. Now comes the quote. It has been taught. On that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forward all the arguments in the world but they did not accept them. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the halacha is as I say, let this carob tree prove it. The carob tree was uprooted from its place and it moved 100 cubits. Some say 400 cubits. The other rabbi said, one does not bring proof from a carob tree. <laughs> the carob tree returned to its place. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the halacha is as I say, let the aqueduct prove it. The water in the aqueduct flowed backwards. They responded, one does not bring proof from water. The water returned to its place. Rabbi Leza said to them, if the halacha is as I say, let the walls of the academy prove it. The walls of the academy inclined and were about to fall. Rabbi Yoshua rebuked them, saying, when scholars grapple with one another in a halachic dispute, what does it have to do with you? It has been taught the walls did not fall in deference to Rabbi Yoshua. And they did not stand upright in deference to Rabbi Eliezer. They still stand inclined. You've heard of the leaning tower of Pisa. These are the leaning walls of the Beit Midrash. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the halachaz, as I say, let it be proved from heaven. A heavenly voice issued, saying, what do you have against Rabbi Eliezer? The halacha always agrees with him. Rabbi Yoshua arose and said, it is not in heaven Torah is no longer in heaven. What does this mean? Rabbi Yirmiya said, one pays no attention to a heavenly voice. Since you already gave the Torah to us at Mount Sinai, and it's written there, follow the majority. So this is amazing. A voice comes out of heaven and says, you got it wrong. Eliezer is right. Say, ah, we don't, we don't listen to voices from heaven. The Torah has been given to us, and now it's up to us to decide what it means. So human, the human decision-making process is more important than a miraculous intervention by God himself. Now, we haven't heard anything about Elijah. Why am I telling you this story? Because of this. Rabbi Nathan encountered Elijah 
Okay, a lot of rabbis run into Elijah. That happens frequently in the Talmud. Rabbi Nathan found Elijah one day and he said, by the way, what did God do at that moment? Okay, he's asking him afterward, maybe a week later, a month later, a year later. He says, well, what was God doing when that argument went on? Elijah replied, he laughed. God laughed and smiled and said, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. The Hebrew is nitzchuni banai. What does that mean, my children have defeated me? They've taken the halachic process and they've made that the important way to decide. If a heavenly voice comes, it's irrelevant. So in a sense, the rabbis have overcome the will of God, but how does God react? He's happy. It's like a parent who is overjoyed when, you know, if, if, if your daughter beats you in chess, right? If your son beats you playing basketball. A parent is, is overjoyed that his own child has reached that level. So what's amazing here is Elijah reveals this. So what's Elijah's role? He can reveal what God feels. He conveys what God is really thinking or feeling. Nobody would know that. And Elijah, Elijah keeps moving back and forth. Elijah is really in between. He's in between earth and heaven. He's in between here and the end of time, the Messiah. So those are a few highlights of this uh, amazing character. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Well, that last part about Elijah reminds me of uh, some years ago, uh, my cousin told me after his sons had grown up, the thing that made him most proud was that he no longer had to make decisions for his sons. Mm. They were now mature enough uh -huh. to make their own decisions. Uh -huh. I always felt God hears That's similar. God is that kind of parent. He, he appreciates. Right. Good. He probably only said that if he thought that his kids made the right decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what's strange here is that the, God comes out and says, Eliezer is right. You got it wrong, and he got it right. But it's too late. Now it's in, 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 in their hands. Uh, you know, you can almost say that, that Eliyahu comes back to earth in order to bring about a tikkun, a, a repair, or a mending. I don't mean to mend the world or to bring the Messiah, but to mend his own character. Some of those negative character traits, now he comes back and, and he's just loving. He's just compassionate. Is there another character that would be a close second? A close second? Because does each second him playing a role like him? Or is it totally opposite? Well, you do. The, the only other person in, in the Bible who, you know, who may not have died is Enoch. Right? That strange character, Hanoch, Enoch, who's mentioned in Genesis. It says, you know, Vayitalech Hanoch et Elohim. Thank you that Enoch walked with God, probably meaning, you know, he was righteous, he was virtuous. Then it says, ve'enenu, he was no longer, ki Elohim, because God took him. So it says Enoch was there and God took him. Maybe there it's the same thing with Elijah. You don't know, you don't know whether that means did he die or was he so pure that God took him before he died instead of dying and he's up there. And later tradition sees Enoch as turning into an angel. Enoch was transformed into an angel, and Elijah, too, really becomes an angel. 
um, paraphrasing what I think I heard you say about Elijah having this opportunity for tikkun. Yeah. He gets to come back. Right. My first thought was coming out of psychology and like, you know, all the, the things like that he was going to get to a chance to undo. That's one of those things and defense uh -huh. mechanisms and Freudian, whatever. You get to undo the bad things you did. Uh -huh. But then I came to teshuva. And mm. is, is this the first time that we see teshuva returning? Because returning means coming back to, mm -hmm. or in all the interpretations, like coming mm. back to your good self, the way God really wants you to be and has Elijah figured this out and now he's coming back and interesting yeah through his the rest of his god-given days right no in a sense that's his role in kings he's bringing the people back to god and not just them but him right you said he no no back. and then i mean in, the, in, the, in, in kings itself he does it to the people and then in rabbinic literature he has a chance to yes. come back himself and do it yeah and notice you know it says malachi malachi says the heshiv he will return the hearts of the fathers to the children. Okay. So the and same root as you. So Elijah is supposed to bring about Teshuvah for himself and for, and for the people. How do, um, how do Christians understand the relationship between Jesus and Elijah? Elijah is really important in Christianity because, remember, Elijah is supposed to announce the coming of the Mashiach. So who is Elijah identified with in the New Testament? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist anoints Elijah, anoints Jesus, right? Recognizes his, his special nature. And in the New Testament, it's very clear. Jesus actually says that John the Baptist is Elijah. He, he, he implies it, and he just about says it. It's clear that that's what he, that he means. Jesus thinks that Elijah has returned as John the Baptist, and Christian doctrine sees Elijah, John the Baptist, as recognizing the Messiah, bringing the Messiah. Huh. Sorry, my last question. Yeah. I'm, I'm asking some questions. Um, people thought they were Mashiach throughout the ages, right? People thought they were the Messiah. I once heard it said that it's, a, it's an occupational hazard <laughs> of being a Jewish mystic to think that you're the Messiah. I'm not familiar with that. You know, it's interesting, you find that name very rarely. Very rarely will Jewish parents name their, their child Elijah. We just had Elijah Cummings, right, who passed away. And, you know, in Christian circles, it's somewhat more common. But very few, one of the exceptions is, you know, Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna. So he was named Eliyahu. But for people, people thought they were the Messiah, but I'm not familiar with people claiming that they were Elijah. Yeah. Since Christianity came up, do you think that maybe the other, of an Abaknai story, in addition to all its other meanings, right. that it's also kind of a response to Christianity, hmm. where in the Gospels, Jesus' uh, authority was based upon all the miracles that happened. Mm -hmm. And here the rabbis yeah. are saying, well, you don't listen to those. Yeah, it may, it may well be. There certainly is rabbinic reaction against charismatic figures. You know, they, they make a very clear prophecy has ceased. Mm -hmm. Prophecy is done. There'll be no more prophets until the Messiah comes until Elijah the prophet yeah. returns. And that is, that is partly in reaction to Christianity. Definitely. Yeah. I'm curious because I studied with you before. What, you, what did you think of Elijah before you started studying to write this book? What changed uh -huh. between the time of knowing you a few years ago 
and today on NYU. Uh -huh. what, what did you learn or what did you I mean, the, the, the main new thing I, I've discovered, you know, other people have written about this a little bit, is just that how, he, how he's transformed from this violent fanatic to uh, a benevolent, compassionate figure. So he's helping people, but he's bringing about his own tikkun. He's bringing about his own mending by, you know, overcoming that, that violent streak. Oh, I like that. I think, I think that's the, that's so interesting. That, that, huh? <laughs> what? Somebody who kills 450 people is somehow becomes yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, he's, st he's, still, he's still an extremist later, and he has some compassion earlier too, but in general it's more of a fierce you know, raging Old Testament prophet and then, then being everywhere. They say he can cross the whole world. It, it takes him, I just want to say one thing, it says Elijah can cross the whole world. The archangel Michael can cross the whole world in one swoop. Gabriel, the archangel takes him two. Elijah, four. <laughs> so, in, so in fact, I, I've written a thing, this, this I'm gonna, I wanna use at some point. All of you remember the TV show Superman, I'm sure? Remember the beginning? Faster than a... Okay, so faster than an archangel. More powerful than a team of horses, right? Faster than Ahab's chariot. Able to leap across the world in four bounds. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. It's Super Jew. And it's Elijah. But I'll tell you, the real reason I picked Elijah for, it's in the series Jewish Lives that Yale University Press is publishing. That series covers everyone from Abraham to Bob Dylan. There are a hundred people who are gonna be included in that. So I, I convinced them there was only one person who really fit their series. Why, why is it Elijah? Because what's the series called? Jewish Lives in the plural. <laughs> He's the only one who had two lives. So thank you. Thank you. Right. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.